Lord, as we open your word to Job, we pray that you help our hearts to be in the right place and to love you for the right reasons. And along with Thomas Alkempis' prayer, we pray, Lord, what is my confidence which I have in this life? Is it not you, Lord my God, whose mercies are without number? Where has it ever been well with me without you? Or where could it be ill with me when you are present? I would rather be a pilgrim on earth than possess heaven without you. For where you are, there is heaven. And where you are not, there is death and hell. There is no one who can help me in my needs but you only, my God. You are my hope and my confidence. And although you allow temptations and adversities, yet you order all these to my advantage. So in my trials, you should be loved and praised no less than if you filled me full of heavenly comfort. Help this to be true of us, Lord, to say, blessed be the Lord. He gives and he takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Job chapter 22, all the way to, well, you can see the screen, all the way to 31. This is the last and final round of their debates. We come to a whimpering end. (laughs) It's not climatic at all, and I'll show you why. Um, now I will let you guys know, I'm actually going, we're going to touch a lot more lightly on these chapters than we have the last two weeks. I think you've gotten a good idea of what they're talking about. Um, I really want to focus on chapter 28 tonight. So we'll be spending most of our time there after we survey the dialogues real quick. Um, but before we get into that, uh, boy, it probably doesn't, doesn't, uh, words, hold on. (laughs) probably doesn't surprise i was gonna try to say excite you for some reason it probably doesn't surprise you that christianity is in decline in america why is that i want to suggest to you among other reasons but one one reason that we see tonight is that we speak more like job's friends than we live like Job. Two things there. One is identifying what is being said. Job's friends, what they say. But the other is that we prefer to speak than live. Our message. We prefer to speak like Job's friends and to live like Job. Now, in their defense, however, Job's friends are doing their absolute best to defend God. They believe he's so just that Job has to have sinned in order to justify the reason that he's suffering. They're trying to defend God is what they're doing in these debates. Um, But here's what we learn is, as we see, uh, God doesn't need our defending. And when we get in a position that we have to defend God or adorn God or make God look more attractive to the world, then what happens is we start getting too much of ourselves in the way of the world and God. And that's what Job's friends unintentionally do is by trying to defend God and uphold his grandeur without letting God do it himself, they are actually misrepresenting God. And I wonder, and I would suggest, I more than wonder, that one of the reasons Christianity is in decline in our culture is because we've gotten so obsessed with defending God and trying to make God look like the most radical thing that's ever happened without simply living the joy of God and living his radicalness through us. We got to somehow like 
decorate everything to make it look spectacular and we're competing with the world in entertainment and we're more busy building amusement parks also known as churches than we are with actually pursuing christ i'm getting ahead of myself Tonight, Eliaphaz gives his last speech. You guys know Eliaphaz. He's sort of been the most like noble of the three, but Eliaphaz is going to descend into utter cruelty tonight because he's at the end of his words. He has nothing left to say. He's reaching for some way to get Job to, to believe in God again, at least the way Eliaphaz wants him to believe in God. Bildad gives his shortest speech yet. Um, Bildad's speech is the shortest of all the speeches in Job. It is so short, you get the sense that he just ran out of things to say. And then so far, doesn't even speak at all. This, this trickling uh, whimper, the, the, the friends go out with a whimper. Not a bang, just an anticlimactic, uh, we have nothing left to say. Is, is the book of Job's way of showing us that what they have to say is empty. They can't keep expounding on it. And that Job's patience outlasts their folly. Um, So God does not need us to try to defend him because our words are so few. We need less words and more of the word, Christ, the son of God. But um, modern American Christianity, the church, by the way, Christianity is not suffering around the world. What I mean by that is it's not declining around the world. It is suffering around the world. It's not declining around the world, though. Um, it is in America. Um, so we'll, we'll just refer to modern American Christianity is really obsessed with creating blueprints to defend God and get people excited about God. So things like this. We have blueprints for growing megachurches. Literal blueprints. This is how you get a big church. You just follow these steps and you will start packing the house. You'll start getting people. But what game are we playing here? Is this marketing? Is this business? Is this amusement parks? Are we marketing Jesus? Or are we worshiping Jesus? There's short-term gain, but we have to wonder if there's long-term deficit by commoditizing, commoditizing Jesus. So we have, we, have, we have blueprints for growing megachurches, for influencing politics. Look, I understand. We love certain political positions, and some of them are important. But we do not exist as the people of God for politics. And the house of God is not a place for political rallies. We also have blueprints for giving advice and getting people to like Jesus. Oh, if only that's how you got to heaven was by liking Jesus. We'd be doing pretty well. People love Jesus, just not as people. <laughs> and giving advice. Um, there's lots of advice in the world. Some of it's really good. Some of it, man, yeah, it's not going to save your soul. But why are we taking this posture of advice giving? If you need advice, there's a lot of great self-help coaches out there. We're not people of advice. We're people of Christ. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Wow, I'm already ranting. We're two minutes in. All right, okay. So why is Christianity in decline in America? I would suggest that God is not the reason for our decline. It's not that God somehow lost his magnificence. It's that we are the reason for the decline. Now, when I say we, modern American Christianity, I'd like to hope and I pray and I think and I ask for God's mercy that we are not part of the problem. We, this local assembly. Because I have... um, 
I've made it my aim to provide for us a gathering place for the body of Christ to be unified in a family where we worship and magnify Christ, period. And even if that makes some people say, not my place, they're too serious about Christ, because maybe we are, but that's not something I'm going to apologize for. So, brothers and sisters, I want us to not pursue the architecture for success in Christianity. I want us to pursue the architect himself. Not the blueprint, but the one who's made all and saved us. So with that framework in mind, let's look at the fizzling dialogue, the fizzling debate of Job's friends. So in chapter 22, uh, Eliphaz is going to speak. He has not gotten Job to see God his way. So what's he going to do? He's going to reduce himself to creating and fabricating sins that he's convinced Job must have committed. That's low. Oh, you must. You, you're, all this is going on. So I know you cheated your parents of money. You didn't file your taxes properly. Like you're making up all these sins. Job responds to him in chapters 23 and 24. In 25, you'll see it's verse... It's six verses long. This Bildad, the dialogues are getting shorter because Bildad's like, eh, and then you find out he just said everything Eliaphaz already said. 26, Job replies again. And in 27, he continues. And then 28, Job now gives us a poetry of wisdom because he realizes Zophar has nothing to say. So he says, look, guys, Look at what all these chapters and weeks of Bible study have gotten us to. Nothing. You've come to a dead end. We're stalemated here. I still insist I'm innocent. You insist that God is punishing me because I have sinned. So we need some other way forward. We need the wisdom of God. That's what we need. So chapter 28 is Job's subtle rebuke. This is how we go forward. And then chapters 29, 30, and 31. Those are all Job's last. If you're in a if you're in a court, every you know both sides get their final statements, their final speeches. These are last. These last three chapters are Job's last defense of himself. And then it says at the very end, you'll notice in chapter thirty-one, uh, the very last verse, verse forty, it says the words of Job are ended, and so are the words of his friends. So the long debates end. They end without resolution. They end open-ended. The friends and Job are at a stalemate. And it's almost begging for a judge to step in and clear it up with his verdict. And the judge will step in. First, it's going to be this young person named Elihu. Elihu. Yeah, Elihu. There it is. Elihu's going to think he's got all the answers. And you're going to find out he actually says the exact same thing the friends say. And so now that man's given their final say, God's going to finally step in. And that's when the book ends. So good stuff to come. But all right, Eliaphaz, his worst, most searing speech yet. Let's look at the first 11 chapters so you can get an idea of how low he's stooping. This is 22, 1 through 11. 22. Then Eliaphaz the Timonite answered and said, can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right, Job? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is, it not, your, is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. 
For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink. And you have withheld bread from the hungry. Verse 8. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness so that you cannot see and a flood of water covers you. So Job, I'm going to fabricate some sins that you've committed because clearly you just had to have done it. That's what Eliaphaz says. Then he's going to talk about God's power and Job, how arrogant you are. And then in verse 21, he's going to say, agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. So Eliaphaz ends by saying, repent, Job, and all will be fine. But Job's willing, unwilling to admit to these sins that he hasn't committed. So Job replies in chapter 23 that he desires an audience with God. So this is 23 verse 2. Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. That's God. That I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. He just wants God to pay attention to him. He feels like God's turned his back and punished him. And that's it, Job. And Job just wants to say, wait a minute. There's a mistake because I believe you're just and that you will punish the wicked and reward the righteous. But for some reason, you got this all wrong. I haven't done anything. Everyone's telling me I've sinned. I just want you to step in, hear my case and say, oh, Job, of course, my mistake will clear this up. You friends are wrong. Job is right. Ultimately, that is going to be said, but God's never going to tell Job why this has happened. He's just simply going to show up and say, Job, who are you to question me? You are innocent, but who are you to question me? I do what I do because I want to do it. (laughs) And Job repents in ashes and dust. But that's next, not next week, but that's in two weeks. So uh, Job wants an audience. But in verse 8, he's um, a little bit unsure about how to approach God. He's like, God's terrifying. Look what he's done to me. And then in chapter 24, he now answers Elihaz directly. And he says, basically, uh, 24 verse 1 sums it up pretty well. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? In sum, what Job is saying there is, Eliphaz, I agree with you. Like, the wicked should be judged. The wicked should be punished. But, Eliphaz, why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? In other words, you see wicked people not being judged all the time. So you can't, it can't follow that, I have to be judged because I sinned. Clearly, that's not how things work right now. And second line of verse one, why do those who know God never see his days? In other words, why aren't the righteous blessed? Sometimes the righteous suffer. Ahem, me. So he's challenging Eliphaz um, in 24. He then talks about the fate of the wicked, verse 13 to 20. And then in 24... I'm sorry, in verse 21 to 25, the last part of chapter 24, he then tells us that the wicked prosper. And in verse 25, we'll finish chapter 24 with verse 25. He says this to his friends. It's a a direct challenge to them. He says, if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and show that there is nothing in what I say? In other words, Job just said, "The, the wicked have their fate coming and yet the wicked are prospering. And now he's putting it out to them. If that's not true, go and find an example of where I'm wrong. In other words, 
everywhere you look, the wicked are prospering. And yet, at the same time, we see often the wicked come to their deserved end. Go search it out, guys, because your theology is too rigid. You don't understand what's actually happening in the world. I'm into truth, not into these book beliefs, these book creeds about God that I've got to stick to blindly. Truth manifests itself in life. It's here. It's among us. Truth is an abstract, Job says to them. So now Bildad's like, oh, Job, (laughs) wise words about to come. And then he ends with a whimper. So 25, then Bildad the Shuai answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? That's what Eliphaz just said. Who can, uh, how can he who is born of woman be pure? It's pretty much exactly what Eliphaz said. Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. And I realize I'm just repeating what we've already said. I'm done. And so then Job says, bravo, bravo. Um, It's a whimper with nothing new. It just says God is sovereign and pure. Uh, This is, by the way, this is that right there, that, that unimpressive finish. Where's the friend's last words? They're done. Zophar doesn't even attempt to say anything now, the third friend. Uh, Lindsay Wilson, one of the commentators I'm reading, he, he said this. Um, I wanted you to see what even an, an expert would say about this. He says, if an author wanted to show that the friends could not match Job in the debate, this is the most appropriate way of doing so. Just make the, where the friends unable to have any more to say. And Job's still got lots to say. So chapter 26, Job rebukes his friends. You're very familiar with this. Very sarcastic Job can be. In 26 verse 2, he says, Oh, how have you helped him who has no power? How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge with whose help you have uttered words and whose breath has come out from you. Like, oh my, you guys are so good at this. You're not good at this. Then in verse 5, he goes on to praising God's great power through the rest of the verses, um, through the rest of the chapter. But look at verse 14. It's just a great kind of summary of what he's said. 26, 14. Behold, these, everything he said about God, his, his majesty, these are but the outskirts of his ways. So all we can say when we praise God and thank him, We're just praising the outskirts of who he is. Like if he's got a robe as a king in the train of his robe, we're just talking about like the little fringes of the robe, just the little tassels on the end. You're so wonderful, man. We're talking to tassels. And yet the king, like there's just no way for human words to get to his full grandeur. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand And so Job in chapter 27 continues as this verse two, as God lives, who has taken away my right and the almighty who has made my soul bitter as long as my breath is in me and the spirit of God is in my nostrils. My lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. In other words, you guys want me to admit that I have sinned and deserved this. I can't buy into this story and lie and say, okay, fine. I stole a candy bar when I was five. There, you happy? 
Like that's, that doesn't, that has no just, like what he is receiving, that's not a just punishment. I, I can't admit to anything that deserves this punishment, he's saying. So far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. There's nothing in his heart that's convicted. Like he feels no, like, look guys, I've searched and I, there's nothing in me saying, Job, yeah, actually you did that and you deserve it. Guys, I got to be honest with you. There's integrity here. Job's not saying he's never sinned. He's just saying he's not done anything to be judged the way he's being judged. Okay. Now in chapter 28, um, he, oh, oh no, very important. Chapter 27, we have finished. In verse 7, he instructs his friends, but listen to how he instructs, listen to how he addresses them. This is 27.7. Let my enemy be as the wicked and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. Who is he talking to? They're the enemies that have come against them. They've risen up against them. Now what he's saying, let them be wicked and let them be considered as the unrighteous. Okay, so what Job is then going to say in the rest of the chapter is he's going to echo their theology. The wicked deserve to be punished. And he's basically saying, and you are the wicked ones, not me. So yes, let your theology descend upon your own head if that's what you want. Job finally here at the end turns the table. And with that, there's no responses. No one has anything to say. And it leaves this stalemate. Job doesn't win. The friends don't win. Everyone's just stuck in their ways, inviting that great judge to come into the scene. So what Job then says in chapter 28 is he starts talking about wisdom and saying, listen, friends, we need something more than human words. We need more than debate. We need more than an architecture or a blueprint for bringing success and getting ourselves out of this. We need something bigger and greater because clearly wisdom's not found in you guys. Now, Job is searching for wisdom because he's suffering. Now, we've, we've been doing Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, that whole the College of Christ series we've been, like this is, I think, message 24, 24, I think, in this series. Um, we've been looking at the College of Christ because we've been in the wisdom books. Proverbs is a wisdom book. Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. And now we've graduated from university with Professor Vanity and Ecclesiastes. We've been in Job and we're, we're seeking maturity with Job the suffering sage. But it was easy to forget, wasn't it, that we are in the wisdom books because wisdom has hardly been mentioned in Job. It's just a story about this guy that suffered. And now we are with Job in this moment of suffering, wondering, wait a minute, who is controlling the universe? Why did these things happen? Job just wants to know why. What did I do? So we'll, we'll look at 28 in just a moment. Let's look at Job's final summary his summary defense. 29, Job talks about his past prosperity. He was a great man. And I just want to read a few verses so you get the sense of it. Because what now when we read 29 and we see what Job is suffering, you're like, wow, how great he had fallen. 29.2, oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and by his light, I walked through darkness. 
as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out. There we go. When my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Verse 7. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew. In other words, that's out of reverence. Like, whoa, we're too young for this. Like, he's really wise and we're not anything. Um, And the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. How dare we speak? Job is in our presence. Verse 10, the voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw it, it approved because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessings of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. And he goes on saying, I was a good ruler. I was a good leader. I did everything right. People respected me. But now, chapter 30, verse one, but now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Ooh, some very low lives in the eyes of Job are now mocking him. <laughs> Look at the loser who's worse than us. So now Job's going to complain that he's attacked. Um, he's mocked. In verse 9, he's going to start talking about how he's attacked. In verse 16, he's cast down by God. In verse 24, he's withdrawn in despair. And so he just talks about how great he's fallen and now what he's going through. And chapter 31, he makes his final appeal where Job basically says, all these sins you can conjure up against me, I've done none of them. Lust, for example. Nope, haven't done lust. Last 31, verse 1 through 4. No lust. Uh, then in verse 5, he says, look, I haven't, I haven't committed any deceit. In verse 9, he starts talking about how he avoided adultery. In verse 13, he says that he cared for his servants. He was a good employer. He didn't beat them. He didn't abuse them. They were taken care of. Um, in verse 16, he, uh, he showed righteousness to the poor and marginalized. In verse 24, we'll read that one. He's going to say, uh, I, didn't make a money, I didn't make a God out of money or anything else. This is verse 24. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor, that's an allusion to worshiping these things in the heavens, um, and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, That also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. So you also there get a sense of what he's doing in this chapter. If this had happened, then let that happen to me. If this has happened, let that happen to me. But he's basically saying in all these cases, it's rhetorical. These things haven't happened. Let them not happen to me. And so he ends in 31 verse 38. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, then let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. The challenge is out there. Who will step in and be the judge and tell me if I'm innocent or not? Boy, that's rough. 
Well, Job's friends have lacked wisdom in all of this. So Job mourns, how can we know wisdom? Because we need wisdom going forward. Brothers and sisters, our words have limits. We are like Job's friends when we think that our words can save the world. We run out of words. We need the wisdom of God, not words about God. Now, don't get me wrong. It's obviously good to talk about God. It's good to share with people about God. But God does not need us to heap word upon word upon word upon word upon word to defend him or to make him great. He already is great. What we need is wisdom to know how to navigate the times that we are in, not just because we are in odd times, but we need his wisdom for all times to navigate all temptations and trials thrown at us. So, wisdom, as we've said, it's been a long time, so we'll review a tiny bit. Wisdom can be described as the architecture of the universe. Because in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19, we are told that the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. And by understanding, he established the heavens. Wisdom's the architecture of the universe. If you want to live well in the universe, wisdom shows you how. This is the path because this is how God made things work. Wisdom, therefore, deals with the material, the natural world, and also the supernatural world. So it's not just the things you see. Science is, can be, sometimes is not, can be a form of wisdom because it looks at the natural world. Um, wis- but wisdom in the Bible encompasses, yes, the physical world, but also the spiritual world, the unseen world, the supernatural world. Wisdom sees the whole that God has made. So um, this poem addresses both. Verse 1, we're going to see the, Job's going to talk about human achievement in the natural world. Okay, let's look at it. So the human achievement in the natural world. This is chapter 28, verse 1. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley, away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They, the miners, hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. So he's talking about precious metals. Like man will do whatever it takes to go and undig these precious gems because they consider them worthy. And he talks about how man has mastered that. That's wisdom. We found the way to extract the potential of the rocks of the earth. And he continues in verse 5. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. We found out what to do with seeds and how to eat from that. Um, But beneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. Like, unable to dig up. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Verse 9, man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. I mean, if you're not impressed with the fact that we built a highway coming up this mountain, (laughs) you're just like, you're you're just a boring person. 
Because, man, to blow like, pieces out of the side of the mountain. If you think about it, you're, you're blowing huge chunks out of the side of the mountain and making a road. And they're like, oh, nothing will come down and crush people from now on. It's like, it's magnificent. It's like crazy, too. Uh, we, we overturn mountains by its roots. Verse 10, he cuts out channels in the rocks. Um, like the Panama Canal. It's incredible. <laughs> and his eyes see very, every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle. We learn how to make energy, electricity out of damming things. Um, That sounded weird, sorry. And the thing that he is hidden, he brings out to light. Verse 12, but in all of this great mastery over the physical, natural world, where shall we find wisdom? And where is the place of understanding? Haven't found it. So, verse 13. Now he's going to switch to the human ignorance of the supernatural. Like wisdom's great, but it's beyond the natural world, and we're ignorant of it. So verse 13, man does not know its worth, wisdom's worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, wisdom is not in me, and the sea says, it's not in me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. In, it's more precious, in, oh, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. This is so precious. Wisdom is so worthwhile that you can throw together all the great gems that people have spent their lives digging up, and they cannot buy wisdom. It's just dust compared to wisdom. Verse 18, no mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? And now part three, you know the answer. God knows the way to wisdom. And that's what Job says. Verse 21, wisdom is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it. He knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, Then he sought and declared it. He established it and stretched it out. And he said to man, these are the first words of God to humanity in this book, by the way. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Here we come full circle. Lady Wisdom. Through Solomon. Solomon, Lady Wisdom, however you want to personify that. In Proverbs 1, verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is the uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But now, through our tutor, Lady Wisdom, through our professor, Professor Vanity, and now with our sage, Job, it changes a little bit. The fear of the Lord is not just the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. And that is defined by turning away from evil. That's what the fear of the Lord is. If you don't fear the Lord, you don't fear judgment for your actions. It's the bottom line. 
Fear of the Lord means you respect that he's the judge of the universe and you are held responsible to him. That is wisdom. It's a mighty thing. I mean, more than all, he talked about the finest gems and most valuable things in this world. You pile them all together, these can't buy you wisdom. It's hidden. God told us what wisdom is, but how do we get there? Like You notice the questions in verse 12, but where shall we find wisdom? Verse 20, from where then does wisdom come? Nobody knows. And that's what Job's saying. You friends clearly don't have wisdom. I'm searching for God to give me answers for all this suffering. I need wisdom. No one knows where to find it. Even Abaddon and death. Abaddon is the Hebrew word for destruction. Destruction and death are being personified as these tyrants, these lords. And even they say, oh, oh yeah, uh, we've heard a rumor of it. Actually, I love what Christopher Ash said in his commentary. Um, he, he, he put this into kind of a cartoon scene where Abaddon and death are wondering, like, we've heard of death or, and we've heard of wisdom. This is how he put it. It's so good. Um, even these terrible personified powers would have to shrug their shoulders and say, well, yes, if you press me, I think I did once hear a third-hand rumor that somewhere wisdom exists. I had a second cousin who once worked for a man who seemed to think he had heard a conversation in a pub where someone was talking about it, but I have no idea where to find it. One of those, like, I knew a friend of a friend of a friend of What's going on over here? There we go. I just knew a friend of a friend. It's just this long connection of, oh, yeah, someone once talked about it. It sounds hopeless. Where do we find this hidden wisdom? It was saying, Job was saying, it's so precious, but we can't find it. And we also don't often want to find it. We would prefer to find gold and these valuable things of the earth and just say, eh, no, that stuff's not that important. But here's the beautiful thing. The New Testament unambiguously answers the question that Job is asking in Job 28. Where is wisdom hidden? Where can it be found? Death and Abaddon say, I don't know, we've heard a rumor, we don't know where to find it. Where can we find it? Colossians Colossians 2, verse 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But you hear that? In Christ are hidden. This is why it's been hard to find in all the ages past. And then God makes his son manifest to us because wisdom is so precious. It's not just thrown out in the streets. It's hidden in Christ. And those who know Christ have found the secret place of wisdom. They have, if you will, the secret sauce of the universe. If wisdom is the architecture of the universe, that's entry level. Because what we find out in the New Testament is that, no, wisdom is the architect himself. It is Christ. And it is Christ where we get wisdom. And it is Christ alone where wisdom is. To extract it from Christ is to do what Job's friends are doing. It's become lawyers for God. Look, we're using all these good things to show you like, oh yeah, no, humanity, like we, Christianity is just kind of a better, better advice than the other advices of the world. I hear this all the time, all the time in our culture right now. Christianity is kind of going out there and giving advice. Where's Christ ever named? Where is he ever named? I, I didn't grow up with this guy, but I knew of him very gifted teacher around my age. I was always somewhat jealous of him because his dad's a prominent Calvary Chapel pastor. So he got all these opportunities to teach and like go to conferences and things. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. You know, in your more jealous days, I think. Um, I'm so thankful now that I didn't because things have happened with him that are not good. But um, 
Um, he was on Good Morning America. He's actually been invited to share on Good Morning America a few times. And uh, I watched one of these clips, and um, it was their Faith Friday segment. Like, it's known to the audience. We're inviting a man of faith onto the screen to share with us. And at first, he's going off and spewing out basically a motivational talk, self-motivational talk, like how to feel better about yourself and pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And, I mean, it was really, like, moving, but, you know, Mark Twain is quoted. And just, like, all these, like, other speakers and authors are quoted. Scripture's never mentioned. Um, and then, so after all this advice, uh, the, the anchor is, I think, is full-on, like, mocking him, but whatever. Um, it seems like they're having such a heyday with, look at this, we got this Christian guy, and he's not talking about Christ. He's talking about advice. This is so wonderful. We've even made the Christians like the rest of us. Isn't this grand? No more of this Christ-only crap. Sorry for the word. That's just the way the world says it, the way my mind's thinking about them. Uh, no more of this. Well, uh, he then says, okay, so this is our Faith Friday segment, so we'll give you a minute to give us a message you just want to give out to the people. Woo, open door. More self-motivational talk. The end. I thought, oh, Lord. So much good advice. A great speaker, gifted. Good advice, but no Christ. 1 Corinthians one thirty. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Why would we not try to draw people to Christ if we really want to help? 1 Corinthians 2, 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. There, Paul's talking about his message of Christ. It was the hidden, the secret and hidden wisdom of God. They're clearly alluding to Job 28 here. Where shall wisdom be found? It's secret, it's hidden. We don't know. Humanity's been striving for stupid things, and then there's wisdom. It's because it's in Christ. It's been made known to us. And yet we want to just keep building amusement parks for Christians? What about Christ? What about drawing all people to Christ? Advice doesn't save us. Christ has lots of advice, but it's Christ. And his words don't run out like the friend's words do. Because brothers and sisters, when you know the architect of the universe, you don't need blueprints. You don't need these strategies. You don't need these gimmicks. You don't need these ways of dressing up God and making him more attractive and appealing. When you know the architect, you become part of the heaven that he's building. That's what the Bible says. We will be made pillars of his temple. How much we're cheapening the great wisdom of God. So, Are you going to be a lawyer trying to defend God? Are you going to be a lover pressing in and pursuing Christ? He doesn't need more lawyers. The world doesn't need more defenses of God or more. The world just needs lovers of God to see what happens when people receive Christ, the wisdom of God. So the world doesn't need more words, but the word. The world doesn't need advice, but Christ. So we need less presenting Christ and more pursuing Christ. Because as we do, our lives become the presentation rather than some really cool, catchy thing. Because when we know the architect, we know what lasts. Things we build, no matter how well, always come down in time. But the architect 
remains forever and ever and ever. Let me close by reading to you guys Philippians 3, verse 8. Philippians 3, 8. Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's pressing into Christ so deeply that he's, he's sharing in his sufferings and in his resurrection. That's called union with Christ. That's knowing the architect. That's being a lover of Christ and not just someone who tries to go around making God sound really glorious. That's fine, but that needs, that we need people who press into the glory we talk about. All glory and honor and praise be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen.